This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 148. This is a Christmas episode. I will share the amazing history of ultramarathons that were held across Christmas in 1879, including one on a ship. Wow. Looking for a book to read across the holidays? How about one of the books in the Ultra Running History series available on Amazon? The most recent book is Classic Ultramarathon Beginnings, which tells the origin stories of nine classic ultras, including the Barclay Marathons. Get them on Amazon, the Ultra Running History series, by me, Davy Crockett. Watching sports on Christmas Day is enjoyed by millions of sporting fans, but it is also probably despised by even more of those sporting fans' families who have other priorities on that special day. While today the events watched are primarily basketball and football, back 144 years ago in 1879, the most popular sport taking place in America on Christmas Day was ultra-distance running called pedestrianism. Why would thousands leave their festive holiday celebrations to go many miles by horse carriage to smoke-filled arenas to watch skinny guys walk and run in circles for hours? In America on Christmas Day, the NBA basketball games have become a tradition for more than 75 years, and increasingly NFL football games are being played. What about soccer or football in Europe? The most famous Christmas Day game took place during World War I in 1914 between British and German soldiers in no man's land in Flanders, Belgium. Soccer leagues played on Christmas well into the 1980s before they stopped. Back in 1879, the featured Christmas Day sports event was ultra-running or pedestrianism. That day, at least four ultramarathons were taking place. One was the largest six-day race in history, the Rose Belt, with 64 starters held in Madison Square Garden in New York City in front of thousands of spectators. In Chicago, at McCormick Hall, four pedestrians were competing in another six-day race in more crowded facilities. Probably the most unusual ultramarathon in history was also taking place in the Red Sea on the steamer Duke of Devonshire. A British long-distance walker, Foster Powell, started a focus on walking or running for six days and is recognized as the father of the six-day race. In 1773, Powell caused a great stir when he walked and ran about 400 miles from London to York and back in less than six days. Walking in those very early days was a general term. These pioneer ultra-runners of the late 1700s and early 1800s actually performed a jog trot, or a mixture of walking and running. Powell established a six-day standard that would be remembered for decades. Nearly all six-day attempts in the decades that followed pointed their efforts to Powell's previous accomplishments. Dozens attempted to match or improve his feat. By 1779, Powell was the first long-distance runner 
who was referred to as a pedestrian, performing the art of pedestrianism. That term took hold in England and eventually referenced competitions on foot for all distances, even sprints. Pedestrianism came into the American public eye as Edward Payson Weston of Providence, Rhode Island, made several attempts in 1874 to walk 500 miles in six days. P.T. Barnum of circus fame had the brilliant idea to move such attempts indoors for vast audiences to watch in his massive hippodrome in New York City. In 1875, Barnum put on the first six-day race in history, won by Weston, with 431 miles. In these races, the winner was the athlete who reached the furthest distance within six days. During the late 1870s, this new reality show of indoor six-day races exploded across America. People of all classes became fascinated by the competition, drama, and human tragedy that could be witnessed during these events. Spectators would usually pay 25 cents per day to enter smoke-filled arenas and city halls to cheer and wager on their favorite runner. In only a few years, pedestrianism became the number one spectator sport in America. Onlookers would watch walkers and runners circle indoor tracks for days, secretly hoping to witness suffering, fainting, and even fistfights like modern-day hockey matches. Indeed, pedestrianism was like the modern-day reality shows that addicts television viewers today, and it shouldn't be surprising that many wanted to watch it on Christmas Day. By 1879, this unique indoor spectator reality show had exploded in popularity in America and spread to England. By the end of the year, more than 125 such races had been held since 1875, involving at least 1,000 starters, both men and women, in front of more than a million spectators. The British introduced race rules called Go As You Please, which allowed running in addition to walking, helping the Brits to catch up to the Americans who had been dominating the ultra-distance strict heel-toe walking sport. The steamship, the Duke of Devonshire, was described as, quote, the favorite passenger steamer, 3,100 tons and with 400 horsepower. It was reported, She has the most superior accommodations for saloon passengers and is fitted with bathrooms and all necessaries for the voyage to India. Carries a surgeon and stewardess. The ship was operated by Ducal Line and captained by W. Turner. In 1879, the steamer had been making trips back and forth between London and Calcutta, India, or Ceylon, Sri Lanka, using the Suez Canal that was opened in 1869. It had arrived in London on December 16th from Calcutta and immediately turned around to head for Ceylon. While on the Red Sea during the Christmas week, Captain Turner laid down a walking course on the deck from the bow ladder to the stern and back. The ship was about 380 feet long, so the course was probably about eight laps to a mile. With a view of encouraging exercise among the gentlemen passengers, 
14 men started a six-day walking race, probably six hours per day, on December 22, 1879, paying a fee of two shillings and six pence, valued at $20 today. All went well on day one, with Mr. Marshall of Ceylon leading with 35 miles to Mr. Wheatley of Calcutta with 26 miles. These enthusiasts rapidly felt the effects of deck walking in the shape of heavy blisters and stiffness. By day two, only two remained and were finally convinced to stop. Mr. Goodman of Ceylon won by two miles with 149.5 miles over J. Weir of Kashir, India with 147.5 miles. Goodwin was carried up and down the deck with Mr. Trotman, a great musician who played on the violin See the Conquering Hero Comes. At a post-race dinner, Captain Turner issued toasts first to Her Majesty the Queen and then to the victor of the walking match. In Chicago, Illinois, a six-day race, 12 hours per day, was conducted during Christmas week at McCormick Hall between four veteran pedestrians, George Guyon of Chicago and Canada, John Dobler, a stockyard worker of Bridgeport, Illinois, Peter Crossland, a knife maker of Sheffield, England, and Albert Pierce of New York, one of the talented black American pedestrians. The 12 hours per day format became popular because they could close down the venue at night and the rested athletes would circle the track much faster, making it more exciting the next day. The race was put together at the Chicago Field newspaper office between Crossland and Guyon, with a $200 prize plus a percentage of gate money. The race was open to all, but only two others entered. Pierce, who at first was a mystery entry, entered as a dark horse, and known to be a full-blooded African. His identity was to be kept secret until the race, and some thought he was the famed pedestrian Frank Hart. Crossland at first objected to having a black man compete, but later consented. McCormick Hall was the first large music hall opened after the Chicago Fire of 1871. It was located on the corner of Kinsey and North Clark Street, and it opened in 1873. By 1879, it was referred to as, quote, the deserted stronghold of singing societies. The main room was only 100 by 120 feet. The track constructed for the race was tiny, 22 laps to the mile, covered with sawdust and was six feet wide. The scoring will be by dials, a system which proved immensely popular during recent Eastern matches. The race began at noon on December 22, 1879. Each man came up smiling and shook hands. Guyon shot out to the lead, completing the first mile in 7 minutes and 17 seconds. After four hours, he was at 27 miles with Dobler closely behind. Pierce was way back at mile 13. Later at mile 54, Guyon had a fainting fit on the track that he said was due to being undertrained. He dropped as if dead and was carried to his room, but returned in five minutes. 
the score after day one, 12 hours, was impressive, with Dobler at 71 miles, Guyon 67, Crossland 59, and Pierce 55. Dobler's 71.36 miles set an American 12-hour record at the time. Charles Rowell of England held the world record at the time with 73.2 miles. On the second day, Dobler stretched his lead to 9 miles with a total of 133. On Christmas Day, outside the hall, the weather was relatively pleasant. The sun came out and flashed brightly on the ice and snow, but the wind was cutting and the cold increased. The streets in the downtown were in the earlier hours deserted. Then, when the crowds passed up and down, they wore the holiday garb that always tells of forgetting business for a brief space. There was little or no business. The vendor of peanuts had left the street corners. Even the telegraph wires appeared to have toned down their plaintive hum. Here and there, the wind blew some luckless pedestrian from his feet. A large crowd came and filled the hall to watch the plotters around the track. Guyon had gone into the lead over Dobler on Christmas Eve. Guyon's trot gives him an advantage. Guyon held the lead on Christmas, matching the pace of Dobler, managing to keep ahead of him all the time. Both men were in excellent condition and indulged in frequent spurts of running, but Dobler could not overtake the plucky Canadian who adopted the greater portion of the day the jog trot so successfully used by Charles Rowell in his contest for the Ashley Belt. Guyon went on to win the race on December 27, 1879, with 331 miles to Dobler's 325 miles. Crossland reached 280, and Pierce recorded 259. At the concert hall in Nantic, Massachusetts, a four-day, five-hours-each-day race began on Christmas Eve at 6.30 p.m. The hall was crowded. Music was furnished by the Hiberian Brass Band. There were 14 starters. The race continued on Christmas Day as P. Welch of Ashland, Massachusetts, held his lead. He reached 96 miles on day three in 15 hours, but James T. Burns of Southville, Massachusetts, won the next day with 127 miles, coming in, quote, lame with terrible blisters. Each of the 14 starters finished. At nearby Boston on Christmas Day, the Boston Athletic Club put on a series of shorter races at the Siege of Paris building and attracted sizable audiences. The main race was a three-hour gorgia-please race, which was very close, won by M. Curtin with 22 miles one lap, J.A. Maxwell with 21 hours 13 laps, followed by J.T. Newcomb with 21 miles seven laps. Other races included a 10-mile run and various track and field contests. The big-time 1879 Christmas week race was held in Madison Square Garden in New York City. The original garden stood on the block that now contains the New York Life Building. For the Christmas week, it became the site of the Great International Six-Day Race, or the Rose Belt, 
The manager of the race was Daniel Rose of New York City, a pedestrian promoter and owner of the Rose Cigarette Manufacturing Company. This was the largest known six-day race in history, with 65 starters. An expensive rose belt valued at $400 was created for the winner. The race entry was a steep $100, valued at about $3,000 today. About 200 scores were employed. Scores were displayed on dials for each runner. Each runner had a big bib number, both on their chest and on their back. The management was surprised by the crowds that came to witness the start. Only one narrow entrance was opened, and only three ticket sellers were stationed there. And for half an hour after the doors were opened, it looked as though the entrance would be carried by storm. Hundreds of men stood in line and scores of women crowded through the narrow passageway. Counterfeit tickets were being spread around to get in for free. The most well-known pedestrian in the field was Frank Hart, the famous black runner from Boston, Massachusetts, born in Haiti, who won the silver belt with 362 miles. His best six-day distance at that point was 482 miles. He is a subject of my book, Frank Hart, the first black ultra-running star that is available on Amazon. Stephen Brody, the young newsboy, also got a lot of attention, along with Peter Panchote of Buffalo, New York, the winner of the American Championship belt in April with 480 miles. Nicholas Murphy of Haverstraw, New York, had previously gone the furthest in six days, with his 505 miles winning the first O'Leary belt. The race started at 12.05 a.m., yes, that is at night, on December 22, 1879. Police struggled to clear the track for the runners. It was very crowded. Some runners were fast to get clear, others hung back. They were spread out better on the second lap, looking like a kaleidoscope of colors and varieties of pedestrian costumes. The front runners were pretty competitive, running within a few miles of each other. People started dropping out of the race as early as after 15 hours. Murphy, who had been leading, surprised everyone when he totally disappeared and then was found dressed in his street clothes, declaring that he was quitting the race without giving a reason and was also quitting the entire sport at the young age of 18, despite being in great health. Had he been bribed to quit? A few months later, in the 1880 census, he listed his profession as retired pedestrian. He would become a storekeeper. After the first day, Panchote led with 120 miles, and Hart was in second place with 117 miles. On day two, there were more surprises as other leading contenders quit. The first day leader and heavy favorite, Panchote, quit leaving Hart to secure the lead with 208 miles after day two for a 48-hour American record. Only 48 of the 65 starters remained in the race. On Christmas Eve, the race continued. Outside the garden in the city, the streets were very crowded. There were many shoppers abroad in cabs and carriages, and the livery stable keepers found it difficult to meet the demands made upon them. 
The cars and stages and the ferry boats were thronged with passengers who carried brown paper parcels, large and small. Nobody had time to stop to think or talk about the mud in the streets. Inside the garden, Hart lost the lead in the evening in front of 2,000 spectators to Christian Faber of Newark, New Jersey, when he went to get some sleep. Grumbles were heard by those with wagers on Hart, worried that he would not return, but Hart had not had very much sleep and needed it badly. The crowd seemed to be getting bored, cheering rudely, quote, with chafing in boisterous tones to one another and the pedestrians by turns. Hart returned at midnight to kick off day four as Santa was delivering gifts in the city. Faber had 249 miles and Hart was at 291 miles after three days. Ten more runners chose to quit and celebrate their Christmas away from the garden. The largest crowd came out on Christmas Day, day four, with 7,000 people. They were generally well-behaved, except for a couple of drunk men who created a slight disturbance. Some excitement did occur when a man was hanging around Panchote's tent. He was detected in an attempt to pick a gold watch from the pocket of a spectator. A large crowd followed him from the building. Shouts of, Thief! Pickpocket! Bounce him! rang out as the man was taken away. The race continued with renewed excitement. Hart looked the most wearied, and all his friends began to lose hope. He was in third place, but only two miles behind the leader. At 9 p.m., Hart, in his familiar striped suit, finally retook first place, which caused the crowd to cheer. His goal was to exceed 530 miles during the race. Only 19 runners remained. The crowd at midnight had dwindled to a few hundred, and a good proportion of these were stretched out on the upper benches for an all-night sleep. Hart maintained a lead of six miles on day five, which was close enough to push him hard to reach high miles. On the last day, running through air foul with tobacco smoke in the completely packed Madison Square Garden, Hart became very excited when he reached his goal of 531 miles. Hart was swinging around with an American flag amid a tremendous cheering that was aroused by a dog trot into which he struck with the ease and lightness of a fresh man on the track. At 8 p.m., a policeman beat one of the scorers in front of the reporters. The audience hissed, and there was a considerable commotion in the garden. Hart, fueling on champagne diluted in seltzer, cruised to victory wearing a white flannel suit with a blue jockey hat on his head. He reached 540.1 miles, running the last lap with the rose belt around his waist, carrying an American flag. So weak and worn was Hart that it was with some effort that he could go around another lap with the belt and the flag in his hand. Cheers rang out that shook the building. His mark was the third best six-day mark in the world at that point, and the best accomplished on American soil. Eight runners had exceeded 500 miles in the race. Hart had established himself as a world elite ultra-runner and went away with at least $3,000 of winnings and the Rose Belt. 
a total of $11,700 of admission money was brought in for the Christmas week event, worth $350,000 in today's value. There had been 23,400 visitors during the race. It was challenging for the enormous crowd to exit Madison Square Garden because its few narrow doors. There was a tremendous crush at all the doors when the crowd was leaving the garden. At the Madison Avenue exit, two women fainted. They were carried into the street by their escorts and were taken to a neighboring drugstore, where restoratives were applied. Thus finished the Christmas ultramarathons held in 1879. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors. And most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.